Well, good morning. I am excited to be back up here preaching again. It feels like it's been a long time. My wife asked me this week, she's like, are you ready? And I'm like, I feel kind of like I forgot what you're supposed to do. So uh, it was great to be able to do the blessed life, but I'm really happy to be able to be back here with you again today. And I thought we would go off of something great like having Robert Morris preach on generosity into me teaching on the subject of faith and politics, because I wanted to have an easy transition back into all of this. Now, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to two places, Matthew chapter 28 and Matthew chapter 16. I encourage you, if you uh, have a Bible, bring one with you. If you don't have a Bible, stop by the information table on your way out. We have free Bibles for you. We want you all to mark them up, make your notes, highlight things, uh, go to town on those, and really just break them in and make them your own. Uh, now, this week, or no, a couple, tomorrow, the Olympics come to an end. Is that tomorrow, today, something like that? And let me tell you, I am so glad that we had the Olympics. We don't care about any of the sports that are in the Olympics. I can guarantee you that in the last three years and 50 weeks, you watched zero combined minutes of such exciting sports like table tennis, canoe slalom, and badminton. Now, most of you probably think it's called badminton, like the, the state, like how Wisconsin tried to steal our mitten moniker, the badminton. Uh, it's badminton, I discovered by listening to the announcers. I didn't even know that. But it's because we don't care about these sports. But for some reason, when we see the American flag flying, we're like, yeah, go America, go whatever team you're doing. And it was such a welcome relief to us because it meant that for two weeks, we escaped the election cycle. <laughs> it meant for two weeks, we didn't have to see everybody's post on Facebook and Twitter. It didn't dominate the news. And I was so glad for this because this has been the most crazy election that I've ever seen. I'm in my mid-30s, so I haven't seen a whole ton of them, but this has been the most uh, divisive, fearful, uh, and hate-filled election, honestly, that I've ever seen. So when we see the synchronized divers get up there on the platform, we're just cheering them on. We're looking for anything to distract us at this point. So uh, God bless synchronized diving and the Olympics. Now, what is most alarming to me, though, is the fear, division, and dishonor that I see going on, not just in our culture, but inside of the church. The church is always called to look different than the culture that's around us. But what I see happening this election cycle is that there's just as much fear, division, and dishonor occurring inside of the church as there is outside of the church. I'm not sure that we as the American church are looking any different than the unbelievers that are around us. And anytime the church doesn't look different from the culture that's around it, the church is in trouble. The church is in big trouble. Because God created the church to be those who are salt and light and hope to the broken world that's around us. But right now, I think we're just as badly of need of, being, of having salt and light and hope brought to us when it comes to the election. I don't see any difference right now. And that's a sad commentary on, on what's happened inside of us. So today we're going to begin addressing this issue by talking about fear related to the election. And I'm going to address this by asking you a simple and fundamental question, and that is, what is the call of every Christian? What's our call? What is it that God wants us to do with our life? Why is it that he created the church? And Jesus answers this for us in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And if you have your Bible with you, highlight this passage, circle it, make notes on it, because this is Jesus giving us the definition. This is the call of God on our lives. So you need to know this. 
And it says, this is after his, he's been uh, crucified, dead, uh, buried, rose from the grave. And he says to his disciples, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is what Jesus is saying about himself. He says, I have all authority, I have all power in heaven and on earth. Not some power, not half power, not even most power. He says, I have all power in heaven and on earth. I have all authority. There is no greater power, there is no higher authority than me. And he proved this. He defeated the power of sin and death. Those are the two great things. Those are what every one of us has to worry about. Those are the things that none of us could ever possibly defeat. Jesus has defeated the power of sin and death. He was dead. He was buried. He rose from the grave, showing that he conquered death. He ascended to heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf one day to return again to judge the living and the dead and usher in the fullness of his kingdom. And his calling for us now, the thing that he created the church for, is to go out and to make disciples. This has to be the number one desire inside of our life. This has to be the greatest pursuit that we have inside of our life. Every other pursuit, every other desire that we have as Christians has to be subjected to this one desire to make disciples. Everything else is a distant second inside of our lives. It doesn't even, it just pales in comparison to this call that we have to go and to make disciples of Jesus. And this isn't his suggestion to us. These are red letter commands of Jesus. This is the will that he spoke to us, which means that we cannot be obedient and faithful disciples of Jesus ourselves if we aren't first and foremost pursuing his command to go and to make new disciples of Jesus. And Jesus is so invested in this that he said that his very presence was always going to be with us to ensure that we could actually accomplish this thing that he has called us to do. We, the church, are vessels for the power, for the glory, for the presence of God so that we can go and make disciples. And when we recognize this and we take seriously this call inside of our life and we take seriously and understand the gift that we have received in the Holy Spirit, we recognize God's presence with us and how powerful that is. Uh, We recognize that this isn't an impossibility for us. This is the probability for us. We will make disciples when we do this. But we come up with all sorts of excuses for why we're not out there making disciples right now. Say, I'm not gifted enough. Well, none of us are. That's why it's so good that we have Jesus. We say, I don't know what to do. Well, Jesus does. We say things like, I can't break down the hardness of someone's heart. They're just so closed off to it. Well, our hearts were once too. But Jesus was able to break through. I'm not smart enough. That's okay, Jesus is smart. Or we say, this is a tough place to make disciples. There's no place too tough. There's no ground that is too hard, no heart that is too hardened that Jesus cannot break through. Jesus has all power, he has all authority, he is with us, and he's given us the command to make disciples. In fact, there is nothing that can stop us from making disciples. It says this in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18. 
When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. And then he asked them, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Jesus is building his church on the revelation that he is the Messiah, that he is God that took on human flesh, lived amongst us, sinless, went to the cross, and in dying on the cross, took on the sins of all humanity, paying the penalty for our sins, so that now we have the righteousness of Christ, that now we are restored in relationship to our Father, and we have the hope of life with Christ eternal. Death is not the end for us. We have the hope that is Jesus. And that's what we proclaim. That's the message of the gospel. This is what we go out there, and as we proclaim this, the Holy Spirit works in the hearts of those who hear it so that they come to the point where they say, Jesus, I believe that you are the Messiah. And as we profess this, and as they profess their belief in Jesus as Messiah, the kingdom of God advances, and nothing can stop it, not even the powers of hell. So my question then is, why are we so scared? Why do we live in fear over an election when Jesus has all power and all authority, when he's called us to go and to make disciples, when we have him in us, and it says that all the powers of hell will not be able to prevail against us? Why are we so scared? The apostles weren't scared, and hell was unleashed on them. All but one of the apostles died as a martyr for their faith. They were stabbed to death. They were shot through with arrows. They were beheaded. They were crucified upside down because they wouldn't stop proclaiming the good news of Jesus and making disciples everywhere they went. The one that died of an old age, John in his 90s, he survived drinking poison, being boiled alive in oil, and then exiled to Patmos. I probably would have rather have died, honestly. That does not sound like a lot of fun. But in spite of the intense persecution that they faced, in spite of the fact that hell was unleashed on them, they went as far as Great Britain in the west and all the way to India in the east and down into Africa in the south, proclaiming the good news of Jesus. The power of hell could not stop them. And it didn't get any easier for the early church after them. Being a Christian was punishable by death in the Roman Empire. And so believers were stoned, they were beaten, they were burned alive, they were fed to lions in the Colosseum, they were made to fight gladiators with wooden swords. Nero, who was particularly cruel, he would take Christians, he would dip them in tar alive and then light them in fire to use them as a human torch to light his gardens in, in his palace so he could entertain guests by their light. And as horrible as that might sound, Domitian was even worse. The suffering endured under him meant that he, would, he was so cruel. He would take parents and he would tell them to recant their faith in Jesus or he would torture their children to death in front of them. And they would have to watch as their children were tortured and killed 
And then they themselves will lay down their life because they would not recant their faith in Jesus. They would not stop making disciples because they knew that Jesus, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, had commanded them to make disciples. They knew that they had found life in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And it said this of them. It said that they love not their life even unto death. I think life is a good pursuit that we can have, but even the pursuit of life and self-preservation itself is a secondary desire inside of us compared to the call of Jesus on us to make disciples. Because the life that we have cannot be taken from us. No man can take what Jesus has put inside of us. And it's worth us sacrificing everything, submitting every other desire in our life so that others can find the life in Jesus that we have found. In 300 A.D., Diocletian waged the bloodiest campaign that was ever seen in the Roman Empire against Christians. And by his death in 311 A.D., estimates are that 410,000 Christians have been martyred. And yet what started as 120 people in an upper room less than 300 years earlier had grown to over 30 million disciples of Jesus. 20% of the Roman Empire that had done everything it could to extinguish the Jesus movement had now professed faith in Jesus. The Christians that survived the onslaught, they were even barred from being able to trade and to sell goods in the city, so it meant that they they had to face starvation because they were exiled from the communities they lived in. That's why in Revelation it talks about don't worry because your name has been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. What that's referring to is there were books in the cities that your name had to be written in for you to be able to do business, to buy, and to sell. And Christians' names were not allowed to be in those books because they would not bend the knee and say that Caesar is Lord. They defiantly stood up and said, Jesus is Lord, and my life means nothing to me so that other people can know and can find the life that we have in Jesus. They weren't scared, they knew their calling. They knew what their life was all about. They recognized the power that they had inside of them and that hell could not prevail against them. So the question for us again is why are we so scared? Why does an election make us so fearful? And I think there are two reasons for that. And the first is that we've forgotten our primary call is to advance the kingdom of God and that all the other pursuits in our life pale in comparison Those are all secondary things inside of us. Uh, There are great pursuits that you can have inside of your life. There are lots of good secondary pursuits, but they have to remain a secondary pursuit. It's great to, to save money and to plan for your retirement, but if that becomes your primary pursuit, then you start getting real scared about who it is that's winning elections because you recognize that they can bring financial ruin or financial blessing to you based on some of the things that they do. But when you recognize that your life isn't about all of these other secondary things, it's about making disciples of Jesus, then so what if the secondary pursuits aren't ever achieved? That doesn't matter. We have everything we ever needed. Everything that could ever be found is found in Jesus and his provision for us. We don't look to our rulers to provide these things for us. We look to Christ and to Christ alone. But we get scared when we start to make the secondary things the primary pursuits inside of our life. And then secondly, maybe it's that we've attached our hope for the achievement of the advancement of the kingdom of God to a political process. We think our fulfilling of God's call on us requires the right people to be in office. We think it can only be accomplished if we have the right rulers that are over us. 
This is exactly what the nation of Israel did. We aren't unique in this. Uh, the nation of Israel, God did incredible things for them. They were God's people. He called them out of the land of Egypt. They didn't do anything to get out of Egypt. That's what I love about reading this story. They did nothing to get out of Egypt. It was all the miraculous hand of God that delivered them. And then they go out there and God reveals to them his will for how they're to live their life and to interact with each other. God is their miraculous provision in the desert. He gives them his law. He raises up prophets who are his mouthpiece to speak to the people. He goes before them. He fights their battles. He says that my call on you as a nation is you are to be a kingdom of priests that spread my glory and bless all the nations that are around you. And here's what they did, though. As they're trying to pursue this call of being a kingdom of priests and blessing all the nations, they actually abandoned God in trying to pursue this godly thing. They tell the prophet Samuel one day, give us a king who will judge over us and lead us into battle. And what they say, they want someone to judge over them, that means we want someone to determine for us what is right and wrong. We want someone to act as a judge for us. And we want someone to lead us into battle. We want someone to be our security. We want someone to be our provision for us. But when you look to someone else to be king over your life, to determine what is right and wrong for you, to be your provision, to be your security, what you're doing is rejecting God as king over your life. And that's what God says to them. God says to Samuel, he says, you are rejecting me by asking for this. When the nation of Israel said, we want a king who will judge over us and lead us in the battle, God said that by asking for this, what you're saying is that you don't want me to be the one who determines what's right and wrong. You don't want to have to look to me to be your security or to look to me to be your provision. They were turning to the God of politics to bring about the fulfillment of their desires, and in doing so, they were rejecting God. And we do the same thing. You might say, well, what if our political desires are good? Well, you should want good things politically. Hopefully you're not trying to advance terrible things through politics. We've seen enough of that. But is your hope in the fulfillment of what God's called you to, to make disciples, to see hearts changed and turned towards Jesus, do you find that in God and in God alone and his work that he's doing through the church? Or do you think it's somehow tied or dependent upon what it is that the political process is doing? Because when you do that, when you make the political process something that has to happen, something that we have to look to in order for God's kingdom to advance on the face of the earth, then you're rejecting God and pursuing a godly thing, and you're elevating the God of politics to the place where the true God was supposed to be. And you can tell what your reliance is upon by doing this. Ask yourself, just reflect on your life for a minute and say, Am I relying on God to advance his kingdom and what he's called me to? And you can tell if you are or not by looking at how much time you're spending in prayer, how much time you're spending sharing the gospel and demonstrating the gospel versus how much time you're spending arguing, posting, hating, and debating. If you're spending more time praying for God's kingdom to come, preaching the gospel and demonstrating the gospel, then it shows that your hope is fully in Jesus for this. And you're using the political process as a secondary thing. But if you're putting more time and effort into debating, into being divisive with other people, 
to reading every stupid thing that's been written on Facebook and every article that's been written, every blogger, then what it shows is that your heart has actually become attached to a hope through a political process to bring about the things that only God can do. The temptation of politics is always to put your faith in fallen, broken rulers to do the things only God can do. We forget what it is that God's already done and sometimes think he isn't up to the task. When they said judge over us, I love this, Uh, when they said we need a king to determine what's right and wrong for us, if they just reflected back on what humanity had thought was right and wrong, they wouldn't have asked for this. One of the things that God had to tell them was, hey, you can't defecate in your camp anymore. You have to go outside of the camp to do that. And they're like, what? Like that's like people, you taking notes? This is good stuff. I never thought about that. And then he blew their mind even more. He's like, and you have to dig a hole and bury it. And they're just like, What? Like, God had to tell them this simple thing. They weren't even to determine that for themselves. And we think we're a lot more advanced and that we've come such a long way. We're more enlightened. We're more involved. But let's just look back at the history of the 1900s. What did we see happen? We saw genocide. We saw Holocaust. We saw the cleanses of Mao and Stalin that led to hundreds of millions of people dying with the full support of the people that put them into power and turned to them and said, judge for us what is right and judge for us what is wrong. No person can determine what's right and what's wrong. Look what even happened in the church in the Crusades and the Inquisition. How did that happen in the church, you might say? It's because we stopped looking to God to be the one who judges over us and determines what's right and wrong and we turned to a person, a fallen, broken, sinful person And it led to the death of so many people in the name of Jesus because we let someone else tell us what was right and wrong instead of God and God alone. Even when they say, lead us into battles, why didn't they just reflect back for a moment and say, remember how God brought us out of Egypt? Remember at Jericho, the first city they came to? It has a wall that's so big and so thick that they're doing chariot races on top of it. And they're this ragtag bunch of people that have uh, swords and spears which don't penetrate walls very well, it turns out. And so they go up there, and what's their battle plan? They can't do it. They're scared. They're terrified because they know they're going off on a suicide mission that they're not going to return from. And so God gives Joshua the battle plan. He's like, this is what you're going to do. For seven days, you're going to circle the city. And Joshua's probably like, all right, good, we're going to strike some fear into them, maybe. And he's like, and then on the seventh day, you're going to walk around it seven times, and then you're going to shout. Joshua's like, okay, we're going to shout, and then what? You're going to shout, and it's going to be okay. I can't tell my people this. They're going to think I'm stupid. No, it's okay, I want you to put the worship leaders at the front. He's like, okay, you know, if someone's got to die, it might as well be them, they can't do anything. (laughs) I get it, they're going to use up all the arrows on the worship leaders. Smart thinking, God. And they go there, and they march around seven times, they shout, and the walls fall down, and they rush into the victory that God's won for them. Why would they think that they need a king to lead them into battle? You know what the problem is with having a person lead you into battle? You have to follow them, and you're going to get shot. I like it when Jesus leads the way into battle. There's other times where the enemies are coming against them and it says, God says, just sit here until you hear the sound of the angels coming over you. And that's exactly what happens. God goes forward and he fights the battles for them. They just have to run over and like pick up the gold and stuff like that. That's their only job. Why would you want a person to lead you in the battle? 
You might say, well, we're not doing that. Warfare is different now, but it's also speaking to provision. When Israel's out there in the desert, there's not a lot of vegetation. You certainly can't feed two million people in the middle of the desert. And God causes manna to appear on the ground for them. Miraculous provision. He causes water to spring forth out of rocks for them. They have absolutely no need. There's no lack inside of their life. God's always been their king. He's always been their provision. And yet they turn to someone else for that. Even after seeing how wise, how just, how mighty and powerful God was, they shouted, we need a king to determine for us what's right and wrong and to lead us into battle. They made a politician into their God. And we continue to do the same thing all of these thousands of years later. No politician has the right to define what's right and wrong. No person has that right. No politician can advance the kingdom of God through rule of force or through legislation. That only happens through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We put our faith and our security and our hopes in our political system to fight our battles for us instead of turning to Jesus and saying, God, would you rise up as a mighty man of war to be our defense, to be our provision. You want to know how incapable we are of fighting? We don't even know who the enemy is. That's got to be one of the first rules of warfare is know who the enemy is. But we don't even get that. There hasn't been a politician ever. There hasn't been many people ever that have ever recognized who the enemy is that we're fighting. We think the enemy is the other party. That's what we're doing right now, right? Everybody thinks that a Republican or a Democrat is the enemy that must be defeated for God's kingdom to come ushered in in all of its gloriousness. Or we think that ISIS is the enemy. Maybe we think some superpower nation is the enemy that must be defeated and is the real threat to us. But that couldn't be more wrong. No person is the enemy. Every person is the prize that Jesus came for. The true enemy is Satan, and he's already been defeated. Jesus, on the cross, defeated the power of sin and death once and for all. Satan has been defeated. Jesus is our victory. We can't even fight our battles on our own. No politician can fight our battles for us, but Jesus did, and he already has. See, the natural result of looking to a political process to do what only God can do is to produce fear inside of us. That's all it ever does. We think, you know, if candidate X gets elected, it's all over. The four horsemen of the apocalypse are going to come riding in. America is destroyed. I'll never be able to retire. My children won't know. I mean, I'm not even going have children anymore. I don't want them coming up in this kind of a world. But then by the same token, we think, but if candidate X gets elected, oh, Jesus, you don't even have to return. We have our Savior already. Everything's all good. That's what we all do. But you know what? We shouldn't be scared of who might win. We should be more scared of our terrible ability to pick leaders. That should frighten us. I mean, we are absolutely horrible judges of who our leaders should be. We don't have a clue. Here's what we need to know. We pick bad kings. When Saul was anointed, he was the people's king. Everybody looked to him. He came from the right family. There's a lot of family stuff going on. Is it a Bush or a Clinton's turn? I don't remember. But there's, it was the right family. It was all about he was a head taller than everybody else. He looked good. He probably wasn't doing the widow peak thing like me, full head of glorious hair. Had the right clothes, sounded right from the right region. He was trained in warfare. Saul was everything that you think should be a politician. He should have been a good king. The people are rejoicing, they're dancing, they're going crazy because we finally have a king. And he led the nation into destruction. 
He led the nation into disobedience from God. He looked the part, but he didn't have the heart. He didn't have the character that was needed to support the platform that he was given. We overlook good kings. Think about David. God tells Samuel, go to the house of Jesse and I'm going to reveal the king to you there. So he tells Jesse, bring in all your sons and he lines them up from oldest to youngest in the right birth order and he sees the tallest son and Samuel thinks, surely this is the one that God has chosen. God's like, no, he's not the one I've chosen. He goes all the way down the line to all of his sons and God says it's not him. And so Samuel says, don't you have any other sons maybe? And Jesse, his dad's like, ah, there's this one, David, but you don't want him. Like, I didn't even bring him in. When your dad, when someone, a prophet of God comes to your house and says, bring in all your sons, and you don't bring in one of the sons, his dad didn't even think he should be king. Your parents, they think that you're better than anybody else and that you should be the president. His dad didn't even think he was presidential material. He was small, he was ruddy, he was, you know what his training was? Being a shepherd, that was a despised profession. He had no political training. He had no warfare training, but he killed a giant. No political training, but he led the country in the greatest period of prosperity they ever knew because his heart was submitted to God. It says that he had a heart that was after God's own heart. And because of that, the one that everybody overlooked became the greatest king Israel ever knew. Good kings do bad things. Once again, we can use David here. A great king who made some horrible mistakes. We always think of what happened with Bathsheba, adultery, killing her husband, that's pretty bad stuff. But he also did some other things that actually cost the lives of tens of thousands of his own countrymen. He made some terrible mistakes, even though he was a good king. And bad kings do good things. Nebuchadnezzar was a terrible king. He was oppressing uh, the people of God at every turn. He was uh, slaughtering people. He was ruling over places. And he stood up one day and said, look at what my hand has made. And it says that God humbled him. And he turned into the mind of an animal, it says, and he was driven from his palace. And after a period of time, he got to the point of where he humbled himself before God. The man who had so greatly opposed God and his plans and his purposes came to the point where he said, there is no God but Yahweh. A terrible king was brought to do good things. And then lastly, no king can stand against the king of kings. Look what happened with Pharaoh. God laid out what his plan was, what he wanted to do, and Pharaoh said, no way that's going to happen. He was the most powerful ruler on the face of the earth at the time. And he couldn't stand against God. God accomplishes his plans and his purposes with or without the help of any politician. God's plans and purposes are not dependent upon who it is that's in office. Even Paul, he was imprisoned by Nero. Paul is supposed to be going around making disciples. You think, how can Paul be making disciples when he's chained inside of a sewer under the royal palace? But it says this, that he led most of the other people who were prisoners and most of the jailers in that squalor place to faith in Jesus. Because nothing can stop us. The full powers of hell unleashed on us cannot stop us from making disciples. We don't have to be scared. We won. We win. 
Because our king has already beaten the enemy and it wasn't a Republican or a Democrat, it was sin and death. He paid for our sin, he freed us from slavery to it, and he has now given us a new life. We have a hope inside of us that never disappoints. All of those, those of us who put our hope in Jesus, it says that our hope is never disappointed. It says that we are never put to shame. But if we put our hope in a donkey or an elephant, we are hopeless I mean, absolutely hopeless. They will disappoint us and they will fail us every single time. But when we put our hope in the Lamb of God, the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world, the God who is with us even until the end of the age, we will never be disappointed because nothing will ever be able to stop us in what it is that God has called us to do. One of the common arguments that I hear is, you know, even though this candidate might be a terrible person, I don't really like them or support them, but it's all about the Supreme Court picks. Right? We, if we let someone else get the Supreme Court, then they're going to stack it with their people, or if this other person gets it, they're going to stack it with people like them, and then all is lost because of the Supreme Court making all the decisions. Well, let me ask you this. What's the highest court in the land of China like? Would you say that they are advancing the gospel? That they are promoting family values and Christian values? Or have they done everything they can to stamp out the church in the name of Jesus? See, in the 1950s, during Mao's revolution, the church was almost destroyed. It was brought down to a level of just a few thousand believers. They were tortured, they were killed, churches and Bibles were destroyed, there was no freedom of religion, the government was doing everything it could to stop Christianity. Mao, after burning a seminary that had been built there, and who was responsible for killing 60 million people, said this, God is going to be evicted from this land, never to be brought back here again. What Mao didn't understand was that the presence of God wasn't confined to a building built by the hands of people. God's presence lives in the hearts of all of those who are submitted and obedient to him. And you cannot stop that. You cannot evict God from the hearts of the church. I wish Mao were alive today so that he could see what happened, how his eviction process went. After 60 years of intense persecution, there are now over 100 million Christians in China. 60 years of persecution took the church from a few thousand to 100 million. And China is on course to, in the next 14 years, by the year 2030, to be the most Christian nation on the face of this earth. And it wasn't because of a political system, it was in spite of it. Because make no mistake, there may be many kings on this planet but there is only one king of kings and every knee must bow and every tongue must confess that Jesus is Lord. God's plans are undefeatable. No one can stand against him. Right now we see this happening in the Middle East. People are making all these predictions about how Christianity is going to become extinct in the Middle East because of the persecution from ISIS. You couldn't be more wrong. A purifying is occurring. Seeds are being planted. And what's happening that's just miraculous from some of the people that are on the ground there, they're reporting that a revival is taking place in ISIS. That Jesus himself is appearing in dreams and in visions to these fighters and they are turning their lives over to Jesus. They are becoming disciples of Jesus. Those who are persecuting the church and killing Christians are having a Paul experience. And even people, the executioners of ISIS, as they behead and shoot Christians who refuse to recant their faith in Jesus, 
are being so moved by the faith and the modeling and demonstration of the power of the gospel and the love that they are receiving from those who they are brutalizing that they're saying something is real here. The God they worship is the true God. Executioners are turning their life over to Jesus. What we're seeing is the beginning of a revival in the Middle East. In fact, let me say this. If you want to see a revival in America, vote for whoever you think is the worst candidate out there. (laughs) Make it bad, people, and we'll see what it is that Jesus does. Here's the thing. The governments of the world, they cannot bring about the change that only the kingdom of God can. And the governments of this world cannot stop the advancement of the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter who the president of the United States of America is. They aren't the hope for us advancing the kingdom. They aren't the hope for us making disciples of Jesus. And they also don't have any hope of stopping us. Pontius Pilate was the governor over Jerusalem when Jesus was put on trial. And as he's interrogating Jesus, he says to him, why aren't you answering me? Don't you recognize that I have the power to free you or to kill you? And this guy, Jesus, talking. And he said, you wouldn't have that power if it weren't for my Father in heaven. Jesus wasn't scared because he knew that he couldn't be stopped. And every other cause, every other desire in his life was a secondary desire compared to the power of God at work in him to make disciples, to advance his kingdom on earth. And we might look at Pilate and say, if ever there was a terrible politician in the whole world, it was Pilate. He's the one that killed Jesus. It doesn't get worse than that. Do you know, I mean, there were thousands of governors in the Roman Empire, thousands of them. And I bet you he's the only one that you've ever heard of And you know why that is? Because Pilate himself became just a footnote in the story of Jesus. You wouldn't know about him if it weren't for the work of Jesus. Even those who oppose God end up ultimately working to fulfill what it is that God is going to do. You cannot stop God. You cannot stop the church. We don't have to be afraid. This is why God says again and again in the Bible, New Testament to Old Testament, do not be afraid. He's having to constantly remind us of that. He says, be bold, be courageous, for I am with you. And I think this is something that we need to to really ask ourselves today. Have we been afraid? Have we been recognizing what our call is? Have we been putting other desires in our life and elevating them up into a place of primary importance? Is making disciples of Jesus what our life is all about? Or have you been looking to the political process to be something that's going to advance what it is that God's called us to do or view it as something that's going to oppose us in doing that and been scared because of that? Because it can't do either of those things. You don't have to be scared. The church, in a time right now where everybody is running around scared, the world needs a fearless church. We need to be those, the minds of reason. We need to be those who are speaking peace. They should look at us and see the joy and the hope and the contentment that we have because of who we have. And that doesn't matter who our president is. 
It doesn't matter who the Supreme Court is. None of those things can keep us from doing what it is that God's called us to do. No legislation will ever advance the kingdom and no legislation will ever keep us from advancing it. There's good legislation out there and there's bad legislation out there, but none of it has to scare us because none of it will ever stop us. We know how this whole story ends and it's with Jesus returning for a radiant, pure, and spotless bride. That's the church. And we know that he restores all things fully, that his kingdom is coming and that his kingdom will be fully brought into existence when he returns. I ask you to join me in, in praying this morning. I think it's so important that we ask God, what is it that you're speaking to us? So God, we still our hearts right now and we ask that you would speak to us. Is there a place in our life where we need to repent? Say, God, I elevated something else in my life. My life hasn't been about fulfilling your command to make disciples. I've put something else there. I've been pursuing something else, even if it was good, but it wasn't what you called me to. Or have we been living scared because we've been putting our hope in a political system to do what God's called us to do? And we need to turn our eyes, we need to put our gaze fully upon Jesus. Remember why it was that he created the church. Remember there's no weapon formed, fashioned against us that will stand. We need to remember that God is with us to the very end of this age. We need to remind our hearts that the government of the world is upon his shoulders and of its increase there shall be no end. Maybe you're here this morning and the question that Jesus is speaking to you now is, who do you say I am? And this morning, he's calling you to answer. He wants you to believe that he is the Messiah, that he is the forgiveness of your sins, that he is new life inside of you, that he is hope, that he is freedom, that he's joy, that he's healing, that he's peace, that he's purpose, that he's contentment. He's all of these things to you. All of the things that Jesus alone can be to you. If that's you this morning, then all you have to do is respond to him and say, yes, Jesus, I believe that you're the Messiah. I believe that you died and that you bore my sins that I now stand pure and spotless before you, that you're adopting me into your family as a son. You're adopting me into your family as a daughter. Jesus, I want the new life that you have for me. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. I surrender my life to you. I will follow you. I will obey your commands. Come and be with me to the very end of this age. Fill me with the hope of salvation. In the name of Jesus, we pray.